0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Roves Podcast. You know, years ago when I came upon the words of the guest today, I was immediately touched by his words. I I feel like all of the teachers that I've really related to and loved and voraciously sort of consumed are people who can translate into words the human experience, like my experience, making it make sense for me in some way. And, you know, because so much of what we go through is somatic. It's our body being like, uh, oh, it's feeling a thing. And then when someone's able to put words to that thing and also give us permission, uh, that was a big thing for me, you know, was feeling through someone else's experience and story of triumph over pain, uh, challenges that we often think are, are the end when they're really just the beginning, the beginning of, uh, unlayering the beginning of feeling more witnessed. And, you know, I remember years ago, someone asking me like, should I stay or should I go? And I think that's one of those very personal and sort of big questions that the soul asks, uh, And I think often we have the answer to already, you know, we're sort of seeking for it not to be what we know to be true, or we're seeking to validate something, whatever it might be. It's, it's your experience. It's mine. It's individual. And I remember saying to the person, like, whether you stay or go, like, I don't care what you choose. Like, I don't care what someone chooses because, and and regardless of anything in their relationship, because What you choose is up to you. And I think what is so important in our human experience is that we know we are loved no matter what we choose because sometimes we need to leave things. You know, we do. And and sometimes leaving is the growth and sometimes we need to stay and that's the growth. And I think so often we project or, and we have a hard time giving people advice because of our own personal fears. And I think it's important that, When we give people advice, we're not attached to the outcome of the advice we give. Like if if we're a therapist or a coach or a priest or whatever we might be, and our whole goal is always to keep people together, then we are projecting the desired outcome that we want upon their lives. And that's why I think so much of our experience as humans really transforms when we are more committed to the truth than we are to it having to be a certain way, it having to look a certain way, but rather that ultimately our goal in life is to get to a place where we are liberated and liberated in whatever way that feels. You know, I think if we are staying or going, if it's in the context of that, that whatever we choose, we do it with grace, we do it with respect, we do it with kindness, you know, and... I think often we need to leave things to know their value and also their weight. And that's a big thing to consider, isn't it? I'm sure like some of you, when I've, when I left a relationship, it felt like a million pounds were lifted off my shoulders. And, you know, it was the beginning of a journey of deep discovery to bring me here today to be speaking these words. And so we, we don't know where, a staying or a going is going to bring us. We don't know where lacking belonging is going to bring us to a place of a different type of belonging. We don't see it in the moment. We just see the fracture and the pain. And what a beautiful invitation into inquiry, into developing space and patience for ourselves and to provide ourselves with that unconditional love and curiosity to say, what we're going through right now is really challenging and I don't know where it's going to bring us. And you know, for the guest today, Matthew Frey, it brought him here to this podcast. And it's you know such a beautiful journey he gets to share. He has a new book coming out. And so we're going to explore this subject of relating and what we can learn from divorce and what we can learn just in general in this relational game, this dance, maybe not a game, but you know what I mean, in this dance, this dance of life. And so before we jump into the episode, please, wherever you listen to this episode, one way to support it is to give it a five-star review, a written review, and of course, if an episode resonates with you, do not hesitate to share it, please. It might be what someone else needs to hear, and it will invite liberation for them, too. So without further ado, here is Matthew Frey. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose podcast. Excited to have my friend, Matthew Frey here, who is an author and a coach. Uh, he has a new book that is out, which is called, This is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. So first off, Matthew, welcome to the podcast. really excited to have you here.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here too.
0: And so, this book—the idea of this—is how your marriage ends. I'm curious, you know how. Obviously, you're, you know, I know you, so I know your work is informed, has been informed by your own personal experience, and obviously, uh, now your coaching experience. And I I think all of us would like to know how will our how will our marriages or relationships end? Why do most relationships or marriages uh, come to a conclusion?
1: Well, it's it's my belief that the erosion of trust is the thing that most closely correlates with the end of a relationship. Um, I think that trust usurps love in the power ranking of conditions that must exist for relationships to to function, and sustain, and be healthy. Because I think people end relationships with people they love routinely. Yeah, uh, it's not I don't love you anymore. It is. This calculation that the pain of continuing to voluntarily invest in this that feels like right a, like a lost cause, so to speak, or like something that I predict will hurt me um, next week, next month, next year. Once you get to that stage, and it's very common for like one partner in a relationship over time to eventually start to feel that way, that the exit strategy begins, and so it's an erosion of trust, not because of things that I perceive to be red flag. Um, non-trustworthy behaviors like overt abuse and infidelity and a, a bunch of lying, cheating, you know, gambling away like the family savings. I really don't think it's these big red flag behaviors that routinely end relationships. I think it's these little paper cut moments, these things that go by unnoticed because they seem so sort of like minor and inconsequential that it, it doesn't motivate behavioral change until the relationships on the precipice and few relationships, frankly, I'd say a a minority of them are able to come back from, you know, whatever that is, whatever that sickness is after five, 10, 15, 20 years together.
0: Yeah. I totally agree with that. It's like this premise or idea that we sweep, you know, each one of these things sort of uh, damages or cuts the sort of sacred connection between you and I, um, or, and, and it exists in all relationships that, that sacredness that needs to be honored. And we don't think you're right. We don't think about the small cuts generally. Uh, but when we're not also making deposits or repairs, uh, or learning from them or acknowledging the impact of that cut, you know, it's kind of like, you're not really hurt. You know, like we say to kids, like, you're not really, you shouldn't really be crying. You're not sad right now. Um, it's kind of interesting that we also, I guess if we're taught that by our parents growing up, it's probably pretty normal to bring that (laughs) to our relationships.
1: That is, and so coincidentally, that is actually, I have two sort of foundational behaviors, yeah. habits that I believe people routinely bring to their relationships and their blind spots that that tell the story of trust erosion in relationships. The first one is, is invalidation. I think people have a nasty, nasty habit of invalidating their partners when that person comes to them and, and says, hey, something's wrong. I feel bad. And then, right, it's those like default responses. It's my brain says that thing that happened isn't nearly as big of a deal as she or he's making it out to be. They, they, they're overreacting or, or they believe that that happened as they say it did. But I, I don't think it happened like that at all. It, we routinely invalidate the feelings of others. It happens, I think, daily yeah. in unhealthy relationships. And I think to me, I think that's an incredible predictor of a relationship that will suffer and or end five, 10, 15, 20 years later is if that is routinely this the conflict cycle people get into. And let's just be honest, in heterosexual relationships, it's most often the female partner coming to her, who are her husband or boyfriend or partner and saying something's wrong. And then the male partner having an invalidating response, I think not dissimilarly from Right, like you're not hurt as bad as you think you are, little kid. Like grow up. I, I think that's the reaction. This adult who's, I'm experiencing pain right now, trying to communicate it to you, and then you're treating me like I'm this six year old who skinned my knee, and is like acting like the sky's falling. um Right. That's that's the dynamic.
0: Yeah, that's it, the in that heteronormative sort of sense. I think of the socialization of women to need to have a much greater barometer of relational health, you know, like from a survival perspective, I mean, uh, Harriet Lerner talks about that, that anytime, um, the sub- the subordinate group must always learn the needs and nuances of the dominant group. And so essentially, you know, her saying that if a man is emotionally, uh, if, if a woman not being able to maintain emotional connection and be on eggshells, if they don't develop that skill, a male's anger can kill them, you know? So this sort of evolutionary idea of that we must uh, learn how to dance better in those spaces. And I, I totally agree with you. I, the research, I not polished up on it now, uh, but I do remember reading that uh, the majority of the time, the woman actually initiates divorce too, because it's after, I think the time also is something like two years since the first day they say, Hey, here's this, that I feel this sort of disconnection, and oh, I, I'm more curious. Why do you think it is that us as men, and I would imagine in same uh, gender or mixed, whatever you know, whatever gender combinations are in relationship, there's often one person who more takes the role of wanting to repair, and maybe they're the more anxiously attached, and then there's another person who has less capacity to hold that, or maybe has never experienced being validated themselves they don't know how to their self-worth is too fucking fragile so why is it do you think that us as men tend to and a you know for you listening if you're like you know but my partner is female and she ain't so good at this yeah either we're just generalizing from a social, from a evolutionary sort of perspective it's m- more true than it isn't yeah i appreciate that
1: yeah, it's definitely not always men. I just think in a observable way, it's sort of statistically most common men in male female For relationships. Sure. Um, maybe a better way to put it would be, and this is from like the Terry real world, um, from you know friends that have trained with him. It's it's this. It's not necessarily actual like men and actual women from a gender standpoint. It's more like this like masculine ideal versus feminine yeah. ideal, and being effective relationally has has long been observed, right? And like like the feminine like social norm. And I right. think so so why men? Because I think a lot of us, I'm um, I'm about to turn 43. Okay, um, hey, sweet. Yeah. Happy birthday. <laughs> so right? I'm I'm like, I think I'm I'm still of that generation that boys don't cry men do things this way. Women do things this way. It's, I, I think it's either the overt or unspoken lessons of our youth that, you know, women raise children and care for the house and are sensitive and all of these things. And I, I don't know, these are, these are beliefs I had growing up playing football in in Ohio and, 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 and doing all the locker room talk that, you know, we did, growing up, it, it didn't occur to me that any of those beliefs or any of the things that we did or didn't do would harm relationships. That was not, nobody ever framed it that way. No, no coach or teacher or parent or even adult ever taught effective relational skills to anybody, let alone the guys. But frankly, being effective at some of these relational skills probably would have got you ostracized from the average like male social circle back in like the early to mid 90s i think i think guys were frankly dissuaded from showing up effectively relationally and so you know for me it was mm. i always that was just how i was like forged and then my marriage ended and i felt i was in a dark dark place for like 18 to 24 months and it was really bad and i'm like i this is the worst i like i how many years would i want to live if this was my all the time experience. If I had no hope that this would ever like go away, this awful thing that you carry around with you to business meetings and lying in bed and driving in your car, like you can't run away from it. It just follows you and it's ugly and hurtful. Um, Once I realized that that mattered so much more to me than I don't know, everything else, basically, I got really serious about understanding what I could have done differently. And that led me down this path of seeking to understand how I unwittingly destroyed my relationship, destroyed trust with my partner. And that sort of accidentally resulted in this work of like helping other people, because I started writing about it and people came and, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet you a few years ago, kind of remotely. We've never been in the same room, but you generously spent some time with me and you know, you are the person who deserves credit. It's in the book too. You are the person who deserves credit for moving me into coaching. And, um, I'm so grateful, frankly, for the opportunity to work with all of these people and the trust that they have, because I want to help people identify, think good people accidentally harm their relationships. And if they are people who value this notion of staying together, I would like to help them eliminate those blind spots, because I believe that's the story of my marriage, that had I known then what I know now, I would not have accidentally destroyed my marriage. And that would have been a nice story. But here we are.
0: Based on the time of year and what's going on in the world, I am all about making sure that my immune system is operating at its best. I want to make sure that it is in tip-top shape so that whatever it might meet, it is able to fight off. And so one of the ways I do that is I use Organifi Immunity. It's 100% organic. It's got 500% of your recommended daily dose of vitamin C, and that vitamin C is sourced from organic cherries. It contains the immune-boosting power of ginger, turmeric, and also zinc. It is gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, vegan, all of those things. And as I said, 100% organic. And it also has a vegan source of D3 from lichen moss. And that provides 1,000 international units of vitamin C, which is 188% of our daily recommended dose. Vitamin D is so important to modulate innate and adaptive immunity. So if you're interested in giving your immune system a boost and a little bit of extra "uh" in order to fight off what might come towards you this season, check out. Organify.com slash create the love you get 20% off anything you order from there. They have such incredible products. I love them as a brand. I love them as a culture. I love them as a company. Go check them out now. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a nice story. You know, this is a nice story of change and being able to inform people. You know, I think that's one of the most, cause I, I know I remember, you know, where I was when we had that conversation too. And, I just saw so much of myself in that because a lot of when I went through the sort of shattering of the concept of what I thought relationship actually was, when I had one that ended, it was just like, why am I not taught this? How did I get here? How do, and then starting to sh- like, why is no one learning this when I was starting to learn stuff? And I'm curious, in if you're okay with me asking, like when you look back on your marriage and you think of like the day, Like how did it end? You know, did, did your partner say, Hey, this is no longer working. Like, I'm just curious how it.
1: Goes oh, I, I'm happy to tell the story. I've, I've told it a number of times, um, th- but there's, there's, there's two stories, right? There's what actually happened. And then there's the, my ignorant experience with it at the time, my ignorant experience with it at the time was we lost my father-in-law out of nowhere one night. So, it's a Sunday night, we're having dinner at their house. We'd been she and I had gone away for like a little like trip into the city for the weekend, went to concerts, had a great time for a couple of days. Our son, who was very young, one or something, stayed with his grandparents. We went and picked him up, we had dinner with them. It was lovely. The following night, I get a phone call from her cousin saying we lost their dad. And I'm like, holy shit. And like you have like you have to go tell your wife so begins what I believed at the time was like the down, it, it's still, I, I believe it is the downfall of the relationship, but my understanding of why is so much more mature than it was at the time. At the time, I blamed over the following months, my wife's grief, right? I blamed her grief. I was like, you're grieving and your grieving is resulting in a lack of connection and intimacy with us. You're pushing me away. And like this awful feeling that you have is, is like trumping like the, the importance of our marriage. Mm-hmm. And th- that was really what I thought. Um, we're at the dinner table one night. It's, I don't know, excuse me. I, I, I don't remember. It was approximately 18 months before our marriage ended. So I guess it would have been the middle of 2012. Yeah. And she says to me, I don't know if I love you. We're just sitting at dinner, just the two of us. I don't know if I love you anymore. I don't know if I want to be married anymore. And that would have been a really, really great time for me to demonstrate some empathy and some introspection and try to understand like how she could have arrived at that conclusion. That's not what I did. I thought that was this really selfish, me first, I'm going to quit on my marriage I made it exclusively about me, which is thematically what I did throughout my marriage, but I didn't know it then. And I moved into the guest room, and I gave us no chance. But I didn't know that I gave us no chance. I kept, I think, waiting for her to like respond to the time and space and distance the way that I sometimes feel like if I take some time away, I, right, I like I reset and I feel better. That's that's not what was happening while we were in separate bedrooms, not actively working on a relationship in any meaningful way. What actually happened, the real story of my marriage is that for the duration of our entire relationship, the prior 11, 12 years leading up to that moment, I had slowly, incrementally eroded trust with my wife. When she'd come to me and saying something's wrong, my response would indicate that I didn't know frequently would indicate that I didn't think the event was worthy of the emotional reaction, either like she was intellectually wrong to think it was that big of a threat or she was emotionally wrong to be like giving that much power to this like inconsequential thing, or I'd get really defensive. It was something about me Mm. failing to understand that these invalidating responses were slowly chipping away at whatever trust I had in the bank with her. And so I wore that razor thin. She loses her father Uh, a a person who's been like steady in her life and has provided safety and provided all of this, like love and continuity. And right. Who knows? I I don't know what the, what a daughter father relationships like, but I can imagine this big blanket, this cocoon of like safety and reliability goes away suddenly overnight when you lose your father Mm -hmm. and, you know, marriage, you're supposed to be the person to absorb that, to like slip into that role. But I'd already demonstrated myself for more than a decade to be emotionally unreliable. Every time she came to me with some pain she was having, she felt worse afterward. And I truly understand like why today in a way I didn't then. And so I have no one to blame. It's her father passing in no way is responsible for a marriage ending so much as it was like the tipping point, because it really like I think it really provided some clarity for her about how unsafe um being in a relationship with me was for the long term and so she made what i perceived to be a wise decision to leave where i think if i was me now back then we navigate that effect we, when her father dies she doesn't feel emotionally abandoned and neglected and unsafe in the same way she actually did therefore i don't believe our marriage would have ended I
0: don't know if you're buying all of this I, I so. do. No, yeah, I'm <laughs> buying all of them. I actually see so much of myself in it, in that the way I operated in relationship in my like 20s when I, you know, was more afraid of actually love and more afraid. I didn't have a solid sense of worth. So I got defensive when I got feedback. I, and, you know, I feel like that's always uh, a work in progress too, you know, like, oh, yeah, I didn't handle that well or you came to me with this concern or thought or feeling and I didn't hold space and I didn't even if I didn't have capacity I didn't say hey I don't have capacity can I do it in an hour you know like I didn't have language I'm sure you know I have I I doubt my ex-girlfriends listen to my podcast but if they did no I validate that your experience is not who I am today so you know but that's also the beauty of growing as a human and you know I'm curious do you think that her relationship with her father, which is, of course, we're now going into, uh, um, doing a, a, a further post-mortem, but do you think that the relationship with her father insulated her from the experience of you not being reliable?
1: 100%. Yeah. We, um, it wouldn't have been, I think if we lived really far away. So we're like both from Ohio and our families are from Ohio, but our marriage began while we were living in Florida down in the Gulf coast you know, after, after we graduated from college. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was all this distance and, you know, that was a unique way to start our marriage to begin with, I think, particularly for her, she began to start to experience for the first time, this idea of being like far away from safety and comfort and like where she's anchored or roots. And then like, I'm the person she relies on and I'm starting to not feel so reliable, you know, after like a few years. And again, it's in this really nuanced way because the whole time I think I'm reliable. Yeah, like I'm, I'm yeah, never going right? to leave you. I'm not going to do all these like red flag behaviors that, you know, guys sometimes do and they're horrible. You can trust me not to do those things. It That's not, I really truly believe that's not what ends relationships. See, I think it's all these things we don't calculate for. It's, it's dishes 100%. and laundry and parenting and various shared domestic responsibilities. And frankly, the way we habitually respond when somebody tries to communicate that something hurts or that something's wrong, if if our response to that is always and it is the hallmark sort of like behavioral characteristic of me and my marriage, if I deemed my wife to be mistaken If I just that's what I thought she was mistaken, or I thought her emotional calibration was a little out of touch with what I perceived to be fair or reasonable, or I felt really defensive because she was like blaming me for feeling bad about something. And I'm like, wait a minute, just hear me out. If you understand why I made the choice I made, you won't be mad at me anymore. Like I really thought that. (laughs) So I'm just always invalidating. And it took me many years to realize that the math result of that dynamic in a relationship is I will always choose me over you. When you come to me to say something's wrong and I need you to be aware of it. And on a case-by-case basis, I might need your help. And you're always left with, sorry, your brain's wrong. Your feelings are wrong. Or regardless, I'm always going to choose what I want to do, what I think's right. Even if you find it emotionally inconvenient, you're just not going to be able to maintain uh, the requisite level of trust with a person. They will either wither away into the shadows of your relationship and it'll yeah. suck or they'll go away and choose a healthier life. And I frankly applaud, I applaud my son's mother for making what must've been a difficult, healthy choice at the time. I'm very proud that nearly a decade later, we get along really well. We're not like best friends and we don't go out drinking together and stuff, but, <laughs> but we, we really do. We have an extremely healthy, mutually respectful relationship. And I frankly credit, I credit the work. She didn't have to do anything. She was always very good at relational like stuff. And, but, but I finally caught up, and I think that she understands today. I think she recognizes. Because as a co-parent, you still have to show up yeah. and consider another human being when you make decisions. And um, I, I don't know. It, it's The greatest achievement of my life is breaking the habits that inadvertently destroyed my marriage. And I really try hard to tell that story, hopefully effectively, to individuals um you know just in like the coaching work and on a case-by-case basis it takes and uh there's a turnaround that's great
0: based on the time of year and what's going on in the world i am all about making sure that my immune system is operating at its best i want to make sure that it is in tip-top shape so that whatever it might meet it is able to fight off and so one of the ways i do that is i use organifi immunity It's 100% organic. It's got 500% of your recommended daily dose of vitamin C. And that vitamin C is sourced from organic cherries. It contains the immune-boosting power of ginger, turmeric, and also zinc. It is gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, vegan, all of those things. And as I said, 100% organic. And it also has a vegan source of D3 from lichen moss, and that provides 1,000 international units of vitamin C, which is 188% of our daily recommended dose. Vitamin D is so important to modulate innate and adaptive immunity. So if you're interested in giving your immune system a boost and a little bit of extra "uh" in order to fight off what might come towards you this season, check out Organify.com slash create the love you get 20% off anything you order from there. They have such incredible products. I love them as a brand. I love them as a culture. I love them as a company. Go check them out now. Well, it might be the exact thing we need to hear because our partner might be trying to wake us up or we might be trying to wake our partner up uh, constantly like trying to do the same thing, getting the same result as you're saying. And, maybe hearing it from someone else and what the actual consequence can be. And as I totally agree with you should be, you know, it's your partner, your ex uh, left you and liberated you like that experience of the void where she was allowed you to go into behavioral patterns that you learned somewhere. You know, I think that's the hard part is like the compassion for where it comes from. And I think as you, I really loved what you said at the beginning where you said that trust usurps love as like a necessity, you know? Um, And I totally agree with that because love that's unconditional can exist. Uh, but love is not unconditional tolerance, you know, like that's this weird thing. You know, I, is it John Lennon said love is, uh, is it love eno- is enough or not enough? I can't remember one of them.
1: Like The song, the McCartney Lennon song, all you need is love. Yeah. Which and, I don't agree. You yeah, know,
0: you, you don't. You, you need trust. You're right. Like that actually, without trust, the safe connection between you and someone else just doesn't exist. Like, you know, ultimately our nervous systems, our attachment systems are always asking the question, if things are hard, will you be here for me? And I don't mean just biologically as a lump of cells and a meat suit, because <laughs> I mean, you can find that on a lot of places, but it's like, will you be reliable? Will you be here psychologically, emotionally? The the part that I find so challenging as men, but I would say this is true of any human who never really had, it's just, again, more common in our development and our socialization, which again is not an excuse, but it's like if you've never had anyone hold your emotional experience and maybe discounted or even said you don't have an emotional experience, you either as a man experience aggression in a sports field and maybe that might even be acceptable in life and then you experience moderate amounts or bursts of joy and maybe chest bumping and you know whatever for drinking (laughs) but outside of that there's not a lot that you're allowed to feel and so if your partner comes with disappointment or grief and you don't even know how to process grief or disappointment in yourself there's actually not even a container that's possible like I think this is what's so interesting to me about relationships where one experiences it with a man or the masculine framework is that the very thing the relationship requires to be successful is the very thing that up until recently is, is actually not celebrated nurtured or even in alignment with what it means to be a man, you know, and that is a paradox that is so unfortunate because, in order for you to be able or me to have been able to work through previous relational dynamics, it actually requ- would require a complete rebellion and abandonment of the framework of what it means to be masculine, which means you have to all of a sudden be willing on some deep psychological level, maybe conscious, maybe unconscious, to not belong to what the core ethos or definition of masculine is. Do you know what I
1: mean? I think you have. Right. And then I don't know who gets to define that.
0: Right. I don't yeah, either. I don't know. But I don't think anybody has
1: right. <laughs> the, nobody has the market cornered on. I get to define what masculinity is. And I think there's a lot of work being done right now to kind of like break down some of those walls. Yeah, Agreed. Um, you know, Justin Baldoni's work is like rooted in that. Um, and a number of others, like, I don't know, you and I, in our own way, I think are are, are trying to do that. I I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with masculinity. No, but I also don't know how to define that.
0: um, I think the I think the challenge is that masculinity is being correlated to emotionality when it actually has nothing to do with emotionality. Like masculinity just is, you know. And then feelings are, you know, like why do these things have to be in? In competition, much like why does femininity and access to anger have to be in common? You know, we all, it's not like us as men, we're like sitting here as a board, like we've had it unfair, you know, like cool. listen, listener, we're not saying that. I promise. We're just trying to offer some, uh, I'm trying to explore, understand on a deeper level why do we have these challenges? Cause you said the there's two reasons one, invalidation. And what was the other one? Cause I don't think
1: we got the any. other habit I work on in my coaching work is consideration. It's my favorite one a uh, failure to consider almost always results in an invalidating conversation after the fact. Um, it's funny. I was just talking about it with the client earlier. I talked to it about with every client. I, I just think about two habits. Um, and so this is the story, the sort of like typical wife and mother might say to me and say, Matt, this is, this really brought it home for me in terms of safety and trust and relationships. I, I heard this story so many times via blog comments, via email, via live conversation. Matt. I am a mother and a wife, right? So I think of myself as this is me like putting words in her mouth a little bit, but I promise you I'm not perverting the meaning of what she being multiple women have said to me. I am a variable in the if you if elementary algebra, like I' I'm, I'm X in the algebraic equation. My husband is y. My children are, you know, Z and A or whatever, how many kids and pets we have. Point being, I think about myself and I think about my husband and my children. I think about their various needs and I factor all of that in to the decisions I make as a default setting, large and small. Everything from like where we're going to go on vacation, what we're going to have for dinner to what day of the week I schedule a hair appointment because Johnny and Crystal need to go to their extracurriculars at school and either, you know, mom or dad needs to take them. But the the default setting of the average wife and mother is to consider her own wants and needs and the wants and needs of everybody in her sphere of influence and then always take that into account, always consider them. And what this average composite of this wife and mother says to me is that I'm married to a man who doesn't always do that. Frequently, it's demonstrated that he is the only variable he uses to make a decision. This is not to overtly hurt me or our children. This is not any sort of like mindful ploy to like make my life hard. It's just a failure to consider me. And so the conclusion is this, the worst case scenario is that I'm married to somebody who fully like considers me, thinks about me and then does things on purpose or intentionally to hurt me. Mm. And the best case scenario is that I'm married to somebody who doesn't think about me at all. The best outcome here is that I'm married to somebody and it it just doesn't occur to them to remember me on a day-to-day basis. And so when I have a business, the wife again, still talking, I have I have a business presentation on Friday. I asked for three hours of like sacred me time Thursday evening to do my final prep for this big business presentation that I have to give. And I asked for it on Monday and I talked to you and you tell me absolutely Thursday night, I'm going to like do this for you. No problem. And then Thursday at 5 p.m., I get a text from you that you're going to go out for drinks for a couple hours with all your coworkers, that you're going to be late. All of a sudden, I don't have these three hours that you promised me anymore. It's this it's not that he did something to hurt her. It's that he didn't prioritize his wife on some like seemingly like minor inconsequential thing. But when the narrative is when the when the story of your memory and your emotional experiences and your marriage is my husband always chooses what he thinks and feels over what I think and feel validation. And as a default sort of like state of being, my husband frequently seems as if he doesn't care or doesn't remember me when he's making just decisions about what to do. And the math results of these decisions hurt me. They abandon me. They feel like disrespect and abandonment. And um, I just a person will only tolerate that for so long. So the story isn't I'm married to this horrible monster who's trying to hurt me and destroy me and and cause problems in our marriage. Most of these people are married to somebody who's a very decent, intelligent, relatively successful at work and in their social relationships, a decent father. But this absence of consideration as a habitual default sort of state of being will doom someone to accidentally hurt others in their blind spots. This is the story of my marriage. I was a habitual invalidator, not because I set out to invalidate, but because I just thought I was disagreeing with my wife Well, yeah. failing to calculate for how invalidating people, even by accident, will always yield trust erosion. And then this consideration thing, it, 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 it's amazing how you can live your whole life and fail to calculate for the impact you have on other people simply because of the decisions you make, even the ones that you don't calculate to be an issue and um I, my work is rooted in can we develop a habit of validating so that it's you're you're safe to communicate with when something's wrong if not you who as the right. romantic partner right like if not you who who do you want your wife or your partner to go to if not you when when there's something wrong little wing is now streaming on paramount plus
0: i'm in a period of emotional people
1: i tell all the oh, i don't care crap a little adventure. Where are you going?
0: I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia.
1: Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little way, rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Termount Plus. Mm. And then secondly, can you be deemed safe? Can you be deemed somebody who, who meets emotional needs in real time as life's happening or are you somebody who is a perpetual threat to just paper cut someone over and over and over again everybody gets to decide for themselves how how fair unfair they think these dynamics are but i believe this is the story of relationships today and, and and for many decades and taking ownership of these two ideas and practicing them, I think is the foundation on which becoming this like more relational person can be where you don't have to necessarily like deep dive in psychology and emotional intelligence. It's just validate your partner so that you don't erode trust with them. And so that they feel seen, heard, and understood, and then consider them just as a default state practice this mentally, mindfully until it's the new way you show up in the world. Because just because you didn't mean to hurt somebody doesn't mean the math result of your behavior isn't pain, and everybody decides for themselves if, if if our partner should have to just feel hurt even if we don't mean to. I I don't think that's okay.
0: Yeah, and even this idea that validating their pain somehow invalidates whatever is true for you, right? Like that that validating their experience somehow means your experience is invalid. I mean, this is sort of like. The essence of the psychological process of cancel culture—that they that two truths can't coexist, you know—that two experiences can't—and I mean, building that capacity for understanding and compassionate for a perspective you might not agree with—is doesn't. I mean, all you do is get closer and more intimacy if you can build space for that. That's right. I like what you're saying because if you could practice the experience of validation you actually just create more space and calm to listen and understand and maybe stretch, but you will invent invariably, inevitably uh, expand. I'm like one of those ones, expand your own presence to your own self. Like there's, you are doing personal work with the desire to be understanding and connective to your partner. And that, you know, I think what's, interesting relationally is so many times you hear like, Hey, you're leaving. Like I thought we were going to work on this or, and the person's like, I said that for two years. Like I've been telling you this for two years and now when I'm gone and my bags are packed, then you want to do the work. Like, fuck that. By the time people leave, they're gone almost always. And that we don't hear the paper cuts. We don't hear the moments or even the, where the cuts add up and they say, this isn't good like you know as you said your your ex saying um like i'm not sure i love you anymore and I didn't, i'm not sure i want to be in this marriage anymore i mean gosh I that think yeah yeah i don't even know at 32 or 27 or whatever how i would have handled that i would have handled it probably the exact same like is this what you call a commitment i thought we were in that you know
1: <laughs> as opposed I to like,
0: right i made it about me yeah I would have done the same. I think there's interesting thing about the fragility of our own self-worth, but the fragility of not knowing even how to hold that woman's or man's or person's experience is like, I don't know how. So I'm just going to discredit it or, or invalidate it um, as opposed to learning how. Oh, man, like this is I, I'm curious. Why do you think as men, we tend and i want to be mindful like hey no matter your gender or the combination of gender and relationship that you're listening to this could be the story of your experience this isn't again i like just want to be mindful this is just because of our socialization that you said matt that we're that we're we're starting to think about these things collectively but i'm 43 i'm from the they didn't think about these things when <laughs> yeah these weren't conversations we were having um no one taught me anything I would say there wasn't much valuable taught to me relationally in high school other than my actual relationships and my coaches and my team experiences. But no one actually literally taught me something like this is how a relationship, this is how conflict is handled. Yeah, I mean, fuck, that would change everyone's lives and their health and their relation outcomes. It would be insane. So I'm curious, why do you think that men, we tend to orient around ourselves more relationally? I. Hate-
1: I would trust you to answer that more than me, that that gets into sociology on a level that I, I, I frankly don't I don't think that I know. I, I guess I would say here's how I would answer it. Yeah. Men haven't had their feet held to the fire to be empathetic, compassionate, mindful of other people. It was not something you had to do to have successful relationships growing up. In our generation and and backward. Yeah, you didn't have to. It was not a requirement. But I would argue that the young women, by and large, on average, were taught this idea of you have to be empathetic and compassionate and an effective listener and effective communicator and be mindful of other people's experiences, because that's how you will succeed in your relationships. Mm. I just think they happen to be right. <laughs> I, I just think that's, I don't think it's unique to to the female experience. I think everybody requires this, but women were taught it, men were not. And so I think men have a me first mindset simply because, and I don't know that all men do have a me first mindset. That's yeah, certainly weird.
0: not all of them. That was very, I, yeah. that was
1: very flippant, cavalier, whatever the word is dismissive something. I, I think many men just didn't don't have the base of it's I don't think the value you already said it I don't think the value of being effective relationally is is something young boys young men are armed with where like today I evaluate above almost what affects our lives more profoundly than the quality of our relationships I I don't think other than maybe health Maybe, but you would be heavily
0: correlated. Yeah. That's
1: so intertwined. Right. So like physical health, you could maybe make a case for, but the ability to have quality relationships is like the, the biggest factor on how good or bad our lives feel to lack these skills is a real disservice to like, to young, to young everybody, (laughs) because it's like, it's not only that they'll suffer, but everybody in relationships on some level May suffer also. And I just think it's incumbent on parents to raise our children to be more mindful of all of these relational issues. It doesn't always have to be romantic relationships. It's societal, too. It's the way we treat people whose life experiences are divergent from our own. And therefore we calculate them on some level to be, to be like wrong or, or, or at least that, that we're not wrong. Right. Yes. So that we don't need to like, accept like your version of what's going on right now. Person whose skin color is different than me. Person who believes in a different deity than me. Person who has a different relationship orientation than me. There are groups of people that struggle with this notion of different being equal. Right, and um, I, I probably had some, like uh, unintentional biases about that. Right, like I, I don't believe different is bad, but I think a default setting is that different is, is like it's like wrong or abnormal or strange, whatever the word is, Uncertain. and then you gotta you gotta sort of mature your way out of that through life experience w- when you're from where I'm from. I think you can instill these values in your children from from Jump Street if you're mindful of it. And I think it's a very useful way to parent.
0: Yeah, I think of how the world often and definitely historically has oriented around the needs of men generally. I mean, that's the patriarchy, sure. right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And- that's the default. It's Even in 2022, I think it's still... Kind of the default.
0: Agreed. And and depending what culture, religion, or or and those are often overlapped, um, informs the relational structure and the history of them. And and uh yeah, when I look at all of these forces that are influencing how we relate today, you know, from a relational standpoint, what's needed to make successful relationships, those of us who were socialized in certain ways or raised in certain ways that make us where we never experience validation, we never, whatever it might be, you know, whatever the reasons might be, those are all valid. And you have to fucking change them. Like you have to grow, like what you're, you know, the, what I understand you're saying is like, it, it, where it comes from is fine. And like, if you want your relationship to thrive and last and be what it, you know, what I think we all hope it to be.
1: Yeah.
0: We have to learn how to do these things, however uncomfortable it is. You know, you said, you know, we don't, you don't have to like dive into deep personal growth. You could literally just work on validating and considering your partner.
1: To me, they are. They're the two foundational habits that if you start them from day one in a relationship will prevent trust erosion from poisoning the relationship. And if trust erosion is already set in and you become aware of these, quote unquote, bad, bad habits, I don't mean to make a judgment about them because they're not these aren't immoral behaviors that they're not wrong they just yeah. will harm
0: your marriage. They're not constructive to a, a, yeah. a, a fun.
1: The, the math, the math uh, result is not positive relationship. Right, right. And exactly. so you get to decide if you want relationships or not and, and how you want those to look and feel. I think if a person says, I want to be in a relationship and I want said relationship to be healthy for everyone. Like not just yeah, me, of course, I, I really want everyone to feel good. I think, by the way, I think that's the default. I, I think everybody does want that. Agreed. And then we, but this is like a, right. It's like a philosophical idea, but it doesn't really mean anything. We We won't do the work to produce a safe environment for our partner, not because we don't want to, but because I think we truly don't understand like how to do it. Mm. But yeah. I think when you learn how to validate. And, and you talked about this earlier and he got really close to saying it. When you make the space for validation and and to understand, right. So my brain says my wife is talking about something that I don't understand. So it's like easy for me to show up as like disagreeing or invalidating. But what if I don't, what if the, the default response is I identify whatever emotional experience she's having. Like, I'm so sorry that like, you're sad right now. Yeah. I'm so sorry that happened. Whether it's, some external thing that happened or whether it's something I did. And if it's something I did or whatever it is, like, I want to understand, like that situation wouldn't make me sad the way it's making you sad. Help help me understand like why this impacts you so much. And then I put that in my like consideration column for future reference. Now moving forward, if I know situation X equals wife feels sad and I end context for why, who the hell knows, right? Yeah. Maybe it's, um, when I was a kid, I was the youngest the youngest person and I was the baby of the family, so I never felt like I had a voice. And so now when I'm at work or when I'm at home and I'm trying to like be heard and it feels like I'm always being ignored or shut down, I feel just like when I was 10 again and it's awful. Anyway, if you're effective at relating to people and you really give a shit about your partner and their emotional experiences, I think you can make room for that conversation. If I understand. And my wife feels shitty and wants to go just cry in her bed every time things like this happen. I just think I can become a more mindful, observant, aware partner who can like identify this shit happening like in real time as life's ha- that's who I want to be. I want to be somebody that my partner experiences me as life is happening in real time, identifying this potential like emotional threat to her, whether it's something I'm doing or something external that I can be supportive of, and she knows I'm there. She knows that she's seen and heard and understood from this previous conversation, right? The the math results of my behavior is evidence that you're loved and that you're not alone. And these are subtle concepts, but like paradigm shifting within your relationship when it becomes your new default. So think about it this way. I didn't have this vocabulary 10 years ago, you know? Oh, fuck. I didn't either. Yeah.
0: You know, it's it being able to, also, do as as you did a, po- a post mortem on your relationship, uh, and I think grief and relationship endings really—they say either do a post mortem or repeat and or stay in suffering. Because you yeah. know, like that—that that invitation, most of us can't really do till we have to, till we learn how to, um, and it's not a, a skill set. Uh, or sorry, it's not like a failure of oneself. It's like, we often can't do an actual audit of our behavior. You know, like it's almost like our self-worth is so dependent on not knowing our flaws which really isn't self worth, you know, it's just, I guess, self naivety or ignorance. Um, and I, in that case, ignorance is bliss, but when your partner tells you the truth about something, it's not ignorance anymore. It's actually the invitation to change something or to step towards the truth of how you're experienced by the world. I'm curious in, because this, my experience when I got feedback and relationships ended and I started to explore it, I really was in, uh challenging slash dark slash you know whatever place and it my way out of or resolving that was um actually i don't want to lead your answer so i'm curious what was your way out of that like in the 18 to 24 months that you said you were really in the heavy stuff and as you're processing this and seeing you know kind of like i don't know, have you ever seen the movie the story of us with um uh Uh, Bruce Willis and Michelle Pfeiffer no but if you recommend it, I'll be on it it's very interesting because it's about them getting divorced and all of a sudden there's these sort of moments where it goes back to all the moments where they were fighting and and I just think of you know the moments of invalidation the moments of and um when you looked back because that happened to me is all of a sudden I had a Rolodex of all the times I hadn't told the truth or I'd had no boundaries or, you know, it wasn't just about me not validating them, but like literally not showing up or being validated and standing for that. Um, yeah. How did you move through that energy? Like, what was the process of, of, I guess, integrating it or alchemizing it?
1: And that's, I mean, it's a great question. It was really slow, was slow drip. Um, I aspired during these 18 months where I was in a different bedroom than my wife at the end of our marriage I aspired to remain married. And my my goal, my hope was that we would find a way to rekindle this thing and that everything would be okay again, the way that it felt in like, you know, year one, two, three. Um, and it just it just it just never happened. But again, I didn't I didn't have the framework or the tools or the, the the vocabulary to get there, no chance. The first book I ever read, and I honestly I don't know if it's considered like a really great book it's just the the it's the one that did it for me um it, it's a very mars venus book which i don't love that framework but it's called how to improve your marriage without talking about it and i read that book sleeping in that guest room I, I i just tore it apart in like two three days and i'm like holy shit! it was the first time i read it's the it's my favorite thing i it sounds awful People often write me or speak to me and say, Matt, it's like you have a window into our home, like a camera, and you're hearing and seeing everything because everything you describe is exactly how it feels at home. That is such a powerful sensation when you're searching for answers to your life's greatest problems, to like this this feeling of I'm seen and heard and understood and I'm not alone. Like that is a profound experience. And this was the first time I had it relationally, was mm-hmm. this moment. So I'm not saying everybody should run out and read it necessarily, although it's a perfectly fine book. You probably have to be, I mean, to have this similar experience I had, you probably have to be in a similar frame of mind. Um, but it just, it, it described relationship dynamics between a couple, like a conversation that for the first time, I'm like, holy shit. But the <laughs> truth is, Mark, you and every therapist, couples counselor on the planet, could could replicate that i I can replicate that today it's just a matter of being exposed to enough the truth is the average person doesn't talk about their shitty relationships with other people especially the guys yeah and right it's like this big secret under our mask of everything's okay we don't want anyone to know that we're weak and suffering and that something's wrong so we like hide it um so there's no way to know that you're you're not the only one until you know and you and i are now in this like privileged position of speaking to lots and lots of people and just perpetually validating that we're all, while our details vary, always the themes are always the same for each so of us as, as individuals and couples. And I think that is, I think that's such like a kind of a beautiful experience to realize you're not some sort of like psycho freak anomaly that is failing while everyone else is succeeding. No. You're like a good, smart, decent person. You're not bad. You you don't, you're not bad and need to become good. You're not weak and need to become strong. You just have blind spots. And and that makes perfect sense that you do. So work to eliminate the blind spots. You hurt people by accident. So practice very mindfully eliminating it. And for me, it was as simple as, I, I was so mad that my wife was complaining about me. And I now... She's gone. I don't have a wife anymore. And the work was to become the person I am now, which is I am so sorry that you are hurt by things that I'm not even thinking about or considering. We don't have to agree that they're hurtful. We just have to give a shit that the people we love suffer. And then to whatever extent we can influence it positively, I think it's incumbent on us to do so, to be deemed trustworthy, to be deemed a safe person to spend the rest of your life with
0: yeah yeah that's such a beautiful invitation that i'm just considering like when when we when we recognize that where it all comes from you know i think i think i had to have a lot of compassion for the reality that no one taught me that and yet i had shame that i had the awareness that i didn't have what was needed you know like i remember a A girlfriend in my twenties coming to me with a a concern, a complaint, you know, complaint really was very valid. The complaint center would have validated this complaint. And (laughs) I can't remember exactly what it was, but I'm, I'm, I'm positive. It was valid. And she said it to me. And I remember all I remember is telling my dad, what I said, my dad, I was talking to him on the phone and I said, oh yeah, she shared with me that. I forget what the concern was. And he's like, oh, what did you say back? And I said, such a fuck. I just want to bang my head on the mic. I'm such a fucking dick. <laughs> I was like, I, I said something along the lines, like, our relationship is good, though. Like, what do you have to complain about? Like, go, look at relationships around us. I mean, could it be more invalidating? And then I said something along the lines, like, if it's so bad, you can leave. Why? Like wow. even saying this out loud, like I, I just, that. yeah. Like as you're listening to this, just know that I am eating a uh, healthy shame. <laughs> sense. And I said, I told my dad what I said and my dad immediately was like, oh no, 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 no. You didn't say that. Did you? And I was like, yeah. And I was kind of like very guarded, avoidant, 20 something, didn't know how to, received feedback, was terrified of being betrayed and hurt again in love. I didn't know all this was operating on the surface of if it's so bad, you can leave like the, to touch the terrifying space that I might not be enough. It was honestly too confronting. So it was masked by this uh, invalidating uh, inability to hold space that I could possibly do something different or be better And when I finally realized that that's the only path like is to actually like, now I see my partner's feedback. I don't always love it. Like who does, but I actually see that it's always coming from a loving space from her. And that's not true of all people, but with her, it's coming from a loving space and it's always to improve me as a human being. Like that's literally Kylie's desire outside of her own desire for her own life and what she's creating which really should supersede mine um is that i just become a better person and if if that can be reflected back to me by her that means it we'll have a better relationship and we'll have a better relationship with our parents and people in our lives and community i mean there's no fucking loss it's all a win and we have to get face the truth that no one taught us this. So it's like, fuck you that no one taught me any of this. And yet I need it. So like, what am I going to do? Get mad and be a victim of the circumstances that the environment robbed me and didn't even actually give me the things I need. But I fucking need them. And not just do I, but my partner does and my children do and my parent, you know, it's like when you do that healing work, it just fucking radiates. Like if you learn how to relate different, if all of a sudden you validate and consider for the first time or whatever, make it a new beautiful habit or a more consistent habit. Literally everything in your life will change. Your body will start to relax. You'll have consideration for your own body and your own experience, your own thoughts. I mean, uh, you know, like your work, what I love about your writing, which I read when I first met you and, and like when I was first introduced to it. And I remember voraciously consuming your posts because you have, an incredible talent of putting into words what someone might just experience as the storm of their life. And that what I like about that is it's kind of like when you open your phone without a signal and you're on Google maps and it's trying to find where in the fucking world you are (laughs) at. And then you finally get a connection and all of a sudden you see where you are. And I think your work really does that. Is it like allows people to orient themselves. Not I am the problem, but I'm part of a challenging circumstance that is allowing me to see from a 50,000 foot view. And I'm very grateful for the way that you articulate and um, and write. And you're such a talented writer.
1: Thank you. I mean, I really appreciate that. And, and that's a super high compliment because I think there was so much self-loathing going on early in my writing that I came off as almost like man-hating. And I got accused, frankly, of like always taking women's side, and I I, I feel like I've really like massaged and, and modified the way that I that I talk about it, and and it's we've already discussed it. It's it's not that I think men are bad and women are great, or that men are always wrong and women are always right. I think, by and large, this feminine way of relating, and I don't mean it's it's a, it's a feminine way as if men aren't invited. I mean. I mean, women seem to display the ability to relate effectively more commonly than I think men do in in a way that I think correlates with healthy relationships, right? So it's it's a choice. It's do I want to learn vulnerability and how to relate effectively? And perhaps, you know, if you're a guy and, and perhaps like strip down some of these like masculine masks that I wear in the spirit of appearing tough and stoic and whatever else, that's great. I mean, it's fine. I just I just think to pretend feelings, you know, there's an argument for stoicism on a certain level to like not allow emotion to adversely affect what you're trying to do in the world. But I think to deny that, to deny that you feel bad sometimes, or I think a lot of men do, like hide it and pretend like it doesn't matter is a huge part of this problem. So many women report this idea of they're like, my husband isn't honest with me. And I'm like, you mean he lies? And he's like, no. No. It's that I know he thinks and feels things and then he doesn't share them. He withholds true things. So it's not a lie, but it's still dishonest and erodes trust
0: and relationships. I wonder if he even knows or in when that shows up in anybody, if they actually even know, though, how to put words to their experience, like to them, they are fine, maybe. Right. Like because fine is oriented as. I have a lot of anger or resentment, um, but that's my norm. So I think like women definitely uh, tend to have that, that really sensitive empathic ability to feel it. And then they're like, want to talk about it. And it's like, I literally don't even have the group of words that can describe the feeling I have. So I'm just going to be fine. You know? Yeah. What do you, cause when I consider the invitation, you know, sort of, that I hear on a maybe a role level is that for men to step out the roles that we've been taught and which it requires women to step out of the roles they've been taught too. Cause in some level, and again, I'm speaking from a gender or heteronormative sense, but this again can be any combination of, of humans. And it's like if men are invited to sort of step more into their emotionality and women would have been more in the over-functioning role, right? Like men would be in the under-functioning role in Harriet Lerner's language. Women would have been in the more over-functioning role, trying to repair everything, trying to keep everything together. The man's going out doing his, you know, and again, I'm speaking in the like traditional gender role that are still embedded in our unconscious and still part of our lives. Look at how challenging it can be for a man to be in a relationship with a woman who makes lots of money, right? Like that requires a restructuring, yeah. And what we mean about power and money and right. Like it's, we think it's just like the men don't know how to be with the power of a women. It's like, do we both know how to orient differently and not make it about masculinity or desirability, you know, cause so much men's worth is tied up in how much money they make because women tend to choose more powerful, higher earning men. Like this is a reality. Yeah, And so men are faced with this need to, accept a woman who stands more in power, which is beautiful, and celebrate it. Yes. And at the same time recognize that he's still powerful equally, because power isn't derived by money. But fuck man, we're humans. We're biological. That's so hard to separate. And I think like if the invitation is for men to step into emotionality and women to step out so much of overfunctioning by inviting the man to step into communication, I think there still is this like one complaint I hear a lot from men is that there's not an appreciation for they took on this role that they were taught to take. And they're not, they don't experience appreciation for, for providing. Like, I know you need more from me emotionally, but I've been taught to do this one thing. And it, I, I, there's almost like a resentment to appreciate it, which yeah. is really fascinating because then, you know, it, then it's not safe for the man or the human who is not experiencing that. Uh, there won't be a validation or experience of safety there. Do you know what I mean? Because I I agree with you. When I first started my work, I was so angry with my own way of not showing up that I was angry at men for not showing up because I saw I was the flaw, and I would have made the difference in relationship had I changed. But then I, you know, when I started writing, you know, sort of similar energetically, I uh, hear as yours, I got the feedback like, yeah, but my partner is female and she's like this, like. What about their side that is part of the dance? And I'm like, yeah, right. Like that's you could write a post for women and it'll fucking fly. You write a post uh, about um, or like how men show up need to show up better. It'll fly. You write a post or do something on how women need to show up differently, and you better get ready. I
1: I try not to even go there. I I haven't had yeah. much of this. But the truth is, I I also don't I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm a candidate for that. I don't think my resume of sucking at relating <laughs> is it qualifies me to somehow like inform women. I guess I get asked those questions sometimes. Yeah, and and I, I'm the first to raise my hand. Like I sat I sat on a panel for a virtual event that would have been in person, like in the absence of COVID for like this all women's group and we discussed like relational versatility both like in the workplace and at home and i was there to kind of discuss like the home part of it I was the only i was like one guy in attendance and me and then just like a sea of like women and they like asked me like advice for women and i'm like no i'm like no <laughs> the closest thing that i'm willing to say like on the record is that i think a lot of young women I don't know if it's still true in 2022, but it certainly was in our youth, Mark, and and, and and in generations prior was this like romantic idea of finding a partner and getting married, occupied the hopes and dreams of lots and lots of young women. Oh, it was a sure. common like thing, almost like a number one thing. Right. This idea of finding my Disney prince, and. What I think happens is as young people are coupling up and are getting married and starting to like, you know, start their new lives as young married people, as families, there's all this like cultural pressure on young women to like, if, if that's a value they possess. And I think, again, in previous generations, it was huge. But the, the consequence of this, the consequence of craving the long-term relationship is that you will compromise your boundaries to achieve it. Yes. So right, Amen. right like you were being invalidated and not considered and all of these things you were being deprived of, but because you were 19 or 22, you didn't know, you didn't know that when you were 33 with two kids, it was going to feel suffocating. Like you couldn't stand it another day, but this exact same person you were dying to marry, you know, 10 to 15 years earlier. It, I wish if, if so my advice in air quotes for for women would be like, let's work. in the same way we need to arm like young men with relational skills, let's arm young women with whatever would be required to truly enforce healthy personal boundaries to not, to not subject themselves, (laughs) even to the, because they believe most of this is accidental. The accidental mistreatment should not be tolerated. Like end relationships with people that do not respect your boundaries And I I don't mean to victim blame, right? It doesn't mean these women who suffer at the hands of emotionally neglectful and or abusive men deserve it because they married them. But But it does mean when they were younger, had they had perhaps a little bit more education and a little bit more, I don't know, support experience with this like boundary enforcement idea, perhaps they could have avoided this like ugly, they could have like protected themselves from it. Yeah, that totally is agree. my hope for 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 young women. I think it'll straighten men up too in this heteronormative framework. By the way, uh, yeah, like it'll it'll straighten up the people who don't have effective relational skills if they're being rejected pretty quickly on the basis that the math result of their behavior is it's just intolerable to me. And we can, Right, you can spend the rest of our lives thinking we keep dating a bunch of like psychos who, who don't actually know the difference between things that hurt and things that don't hurt, or we can get really serious about empathy and validation, critical you, skills to making relationships last.
0: Amen. I mean, that's if, if men or people observe that, that people are leaving other people who are like that, they will and going towards considerate uh, boundary to humans Uh, they will then desire the behavior that the people are choosing, you know, much like we observe, you know, for, you know, I said earlier, like women choosing powerful men, then men will try to get powerful. So they get chosen by women. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the same thing. What you're inviting is what we experienced, which is someone said no more. And then we were left with this exploration of ourselves as to why, how did I create this or participate in the outcome that's here? And, That's why I always think like all the greatest lessons, and I'm curious your thoughts, all the greatest lessons I've ever learned about myself, I would say almost all of them came at the hands of a woman trying to tell me the truth. And um, I didn't actually always know it in the moment. (laughs) Like I can think back moments in my 20s when someone told me something and it left like a truth bookmark but I wasn't ready for it till years later. And then I could look back and be like, Oh, she told me that she knew and I wasn't ready to hear. And I think sometimes, you know, it just takes the right words in the right order or the right person to leave us yeah. um, or betray us or whatever it might be. You know, it's like, I find that betrayals really show up in our outward life when they've shown up inwardly way before. Like it's very, don't get me wrong. There are serial cheaters. Absolutely. But outside of the context of a serial cheater, when we get betrayed by someone, it's usually because somewhere before that, we betrayed ourselves, not paying attention to red flags, not noticing behavior or invalidating. Like you said earlier, if we're invalidating our partner constantly, they will eventually go where they are validated and then we'll be pissed at them. It's like, well, why would anyone want to turn towards or be intimate with someone they don't feel emotionally safe with at all
1: right i've really softened my stance on it i uh i I don't want to make it sound like i'm an advocate for infidelity i'm not or or myself either yeah right there's a bunch of people out there that have suffered tremendously emotionally because of like sexual infidelity and I, i do not in any way, I mean, to trivialize that I, I, I experienced, you know, sometime after our marriage ended in a, a, a timeline I deemed to be too soon for my comfort. My wife was in a dating relationship and I, I would equate it emotionally with the the sensation of being, you know what I mean? It felt the same. Oh, of course, I, I, man. I think, I mean, I, yeah. I think it did. It, it's, it was awful. But um, the way that I I just radical personal responsibility is so important. So important. If I show up effectively, if I am, if I behave in a manner that results in my wife feeling seen and heard, understood, loved, most importantly, like safe and respected and honored. And as if I adhered to my marriage vows, all the things that she thought Mm -hmm. I was promising on her wedding day. If the math result of my words and actions equaled that experience for her, she doesn't end our marriage and right. Or, or insert random partner X here with some other person. They, when everything feels good at home, I mean, again, like you said, there are the serial cheaters, but the vast majority of relationships are this total breakdown of safety and trust and intimacy at home. It's disconnected. The tether is cut. And then these two people go out and live their own individual lives, often in the workplace, and then foster intimacy with other people there. Yes. And then suddenly it's this like black and white, like kind of dichotomy. It's like, this person makes me feel really good. And this person at home promised to love me forever, makes me feel really bad. And then if you don't take any responsibility for your role in any of this, which I I was the kind of person who didn't do that, then all of a sudden this like feel good thing People will choose the feel-good thing over the feel-bad thing <laughs> almost always. That is that's like the, human the nature, most obvious right statement of human behavior ever. And so be a feel-good thing for your partner. Like, do mm. it. Like, that's who I want to be. And the problem is it requires a little bit more mental and emotional effort than I'd, I'd frankly calculated for when I was getting married. I didn't know. I just <laughs> thought it was going to be like it was then, right? I, I, I describe it as like forever uh, boyfriend and girlfriend. And like that, we're just always going to be like this. It it just doesn't, it doesn't work that way.
0: It doesn't work. It imprisons the relationship. It makes it have to be how it started or, or that, you know, like God forbid we mature and learn and change, you know, like Alexander Solomon, Dr. Alexander Solomon talks about how every marriage is, you might in your lifetime be married to more than one person, um, but it might be the same person you know, like different iterations. And I love that because it gives look like we're always changing. So why wouldn't we want that for a partner, too? And I think, you know, allowing them to do that and feeling the space of uncertainty. I mean, that's what creates the adventure. That's what creates desire is knowing that your partner is always changing and she or he or they are always a mystery. And that's always true. Like, you know, they're like, wait, I thought you liked this. You don't like that anymore. And we're almost like mad that they changed something <laughs> as opposed to like, whoo, tell me more, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's
1: very funny. Yeah. Change is uncomfortable. It's, I don't know. I, I don't know why the, the human experience is that change is uncomfortable, but what what an effective way to like silver lining that human condition. It, 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 it also prevents boredom and monotony. If like we could embrace that, but I mean, you're so right. Like what we value as 21 year olds and wanting to start our career versus what we value at 29, 30, maybe when we have our first child versus what we value and we become empty nesters in our late forties, early fifties, you know, and a lot of people have like that general timeline, those are different life stages. And your wants and your needs are going to vary dramatically. And it's incumbent on the partner to always be a steady source of partnership and support and reliability and all of that. We, we just don't know how to think about that when we're in our teens and twenties, I don't think, I, I, but I think we Definitely could not, I think yeah. the world can become a place where younger people are considering some of those ideas. It just hasn't been to date. The, frankly, there's so much that's not tolerated today in the, in the realm of like racism, bigotry, sexism that have become like, So like sort of like frowned upon that people have like been shamed out of the behavior, like taught, we don't bully, we don't discriminate on the basis of skin color and sexual orientation and things like that. And, you know, obviously we have a ways to go in that department, but I think there is like a critical mass, particularly of young people that like do this well and they sort of self police it and it's beautiful. What we're talking about relational skills can live You know, can we, not that I'm advocating shame, I'm really not, but can we, in a generic way, shame out of young people, these, these tendencies, these habits that inadvertently will sabotage their relationships over time?
0: Yeah. Amen. I have a lot of hope for the future for that because never before have young people or people in general had more access to more relational knowledge for free, you know, like, right. I think till we integrate them into our education systems it won't be widespread and it will be uh, you know I would would have said previously it is a privilege it is a privilege to be able to learn about relating because it means you have this space to think about relating so it definitely is a privilege much like philosophy was born from wealth because people had time people were picking the grapes while they were eating them you know and and the other side of it though is we have access. Like you can buy your book. You can listen to this podcast. You can do, you can watch YouTube videos from different people. You can read quotes on Instagram. You can do lots of things there, you know, and really it's just, are you willing to, can you take the time? Can you make the time? Um, well, acknowledging that, of course, as I said, you know, sometimes asking those questions is a privilege. We have to, it's hard to be in the storm and see the storm, you know? And, um, I think your book can be a way to orient that. So
1: my brother, so.
0: thank you for coming on and sharing.
1: I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It's excellent to talk to you again. Where do people go find you? Well, I am, I've am. i been blogging at mustbethistalltoride.com since 2013. Um, I think that by the time people hear this, that will automatically redirect to Matthewfrey.com. Um, and then the book is, is this is how your marriage ends, a A hopeful approach to saving relationships. It is my first and and hopefully not my only, but I'm, I'm really excited about it. And, um, I hope if, if people give it a chance that they like it, it's, uh, it's, it's a combination of my lived experiences with what I believe I've learned or ascertained about effective relational behavior and health as in this, like post-married life where I've really dedicated it to understanding human relationships and you know evolving into someone who coaches people and tries to help them beautiful develop new habits that serve rather than accidentally harm their relationships
0: beautiful and I 100% recommend go buy Matthew's book he is you're such a talented like I say that more a lot because I mean it it is You're such a talented writer. You will be entertained because you're really funny too. You, You will be entertained and you will enjoy and you will learn and you will grow. Matthew Frey, thank you, sir. Thank you, Mark.